0: This fade to black
1: and then fade into the sunset. Cue end of season two. Yeah, not the end of forever. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but we have summer plans that we need to attend to. You do.
0: I have dissertation plans. Those are, those are plans, plans nonetheless. I have nothing to do with the fact that it's summer, though, unfortunately.
1: But we're in the same room, finally. Yeah, nice to see you. Since <laughs> <It's> Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, we've seen each other before then But uh, now we're recording And it's the last season Or the last episode of season two We had a good run Came out of the gate real fast after season one And now we're wrapping things up Joel and I just came back from speaking At a little um, conference For the Stockholm or Sweden? Sweden Sweden Women in Arbitration Network Called SWAN And we talked about thinking outside of the box
0: which is what we do. Tape, kind of, kind of. But today we will talk not only to each other, but finally we have managed to lure our favorite <laughs> editor slash unpaid <laughs> slave worker in, intern <laughs> expert out of the shadows and into the spotlight. Jan Kunster will call in from London to Insert talk to applause. Yeah. Exactly. But he won't talk about London. He'll talk about Prague, which is the capital of the Czech Republic. For those of you who, like Brian, tend to confuse (laughs) Czech Republic with Croatia. Absolutely not.
1: (laughs) Or my dad who confuses Switzerland and
0: Sweden. Yeah, He is not the only one. Let me tell you that. It happens on a regular basis. It's it was funny because Sweden was playing Switzerland in the Hockey World Cup final. And Americans were like, what's <laughs> happening? Yeah. It's like the Hungarian-Austrian Empire. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> Two different countries. What? I'm
1: super excited to have Jan on the podcast. And then he is actually going to take over our Happy Fun Time. So we have first, we're going to talk about due process paranoia in arbitration. Um, and I will kind of lead that discussion. And then Jan will come on
0: talking about Prague talking about Prague as the place of arbitration the the finale of our place of arbitration tour I can't believe we got I didn't think we were going to get a last interview for this episode but pulled through in the end no joke I think I have 10 people that I've agreed to that we would interview so so, sorry to to all of you (laughs) but there's plenty time we'll do double digit number of seasons on this podcast we'll have plenty of time to come back to do a few other maybe not in a Series, Right. But every now and then I think it's a good segment and people seem to enjoy it. So we'll go back to all of those of, those of you that, that we didn't have time for. We needed to save this one spot for, for our Czech friend.
1: Exactly. And then he will turn the microphones on to us. I guess that doesn't make yeah, any sense. reverse interviewing. Reverse interview. And you guys will hear a little bit about us and how the podcast started and what our goals for the podcast are, and he's gonna take some listener questions and pose them to us. So super excited to have him as taking an active role in this episode. We don't really know what's coming. No, we don't. Suspense. It's gonna be couples therapy for you and me. The tough (laughs) questions we're not expecting. (laughs) So like, what's your, oh, I added that question. I I have a question. Oh, really? Yeah, teaser. What is your favorite and least favorite characteristic of the other co-host? Should I have researched that? If you don't have to research it. No, of course not. I can just draw off yeah. of the list I have. Everything you hate about me. <laughs> um, so that's the episode. And it was fun talking to these people because I feel like we're really on track for where we want to be. And explaining the process to someone else just shows how much progress we've made over the past
0: year and a half. Amen. What else is, is new? We've, we've come to talk about arbitration news in this. Yes. We have the challenge in the Sphere Court of Appeal. Exactly. It just became public. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think we, I haven't read the actual challenge, but the, the fact that there is a challenge in one of the many disputes involving Gazprom and Naftogaz, which I think we, it's, it's fair to say as an outside observer that in practice it is also. Ukraine versus Russia in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, it's a corporate dispute between two corporate entities. They are state-owned entities, and there's a lot of geopolitical implications in this gas dispute. But one of the the big awards resulting from this long-running dispute was rendered in Stockholm earlier this year, and it has now been challenged by Gazprom. And the key argument, and this is, of course, the, the elevator pitch, why we're interested, is that they are arguing, it seems, Gazprom is arguing that the secretary... Wrote too much of the award, which our listeners are well aware that yes. it's a it's a common thing now. It's the second time this has been brought up in a in a marquee super big case after the Yukos challenge in The Hague. And we have, I mean, we have our
1: secretary discussion we've had our born arbitration discussion we had talking about because they have a forensic scientist who looked at the handwriting samples of the arbitrator and. Is it the handwriting sample,
0: still, or is it the, uh, the actual award, like the, uh, the data analysis? Oh, yeah, not like his physical handwriting. I don't right, think right, right, so. Right. No, 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 you're right. It's no. A, on the assumption that spoke. the secretary did not write the award by hand. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would but be... I don't
1: know. <laughs> they should do that. Uh, no, but they analyzed the text and yeah. language.
0: We will probably learn more about this as this develops, but it was... How much is in dispute? I think the award is on $5 billion U.S. billion excluding interest. A lot of money. It's a lot of money, and so. they stayed the enforcement.
1: Right? That's no. That no, was, that was um, something else. That was Spain. Sp- yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Nov energia versus Spain. Did I mean how is it in Swedish courts for stay enforcement? Is it almost automatic that they'll stay it,
0: or no, do they other go around? other way around. You have to request it, and then they normally like, do a whole thing. And they don't. They usually don't stay it. It depends on the likelihood of success, I think, and also the likelihood that the other party won't abide by, by what the court says. So it, it, I don't think you can say that's the default thing. But it's uncommon in treaty-based cases. I think this is the first time it's happened that they've stayed the enforcement. But the reason is, of course, that you can only stay the enforcement in Sweden. Mm-hmm. So in treaty cases, typically, you don't want to, I mean, there's no reason to have them stay enforcement in only one jurisdiction. Right. If you're chasing a state that has assets everywhere, they just go somewhere else where the Swedish court's jurisdiction does not extend. Makes sense. Yes, unlike Ixit, when you, if the right. Human Committee takes the enforcement, it's a global thing. Yes. For more information, read us on the exit
1: review. <laughs> <Ta-da>. <laughs> but also, don't forget your coupons that you can have through Oxford University Press. You can find the link in the description or on our website, thearbitrationstation.com, thearbitrationstation.com. And then email us and tweet I'm trying to us. read off your manuscript now. I already forgot what the next segment is. The next segment will be due process paranoia.
0: Oh, a good title. Looking forward to this. I'm just going to relax and let you do your thing.
1: (laughs) And I'll just be the paranoid one.
0: (laughs) All right, let's move on.
1: (laughs) Talking about due process paranoia in this first segment, uh, it's a very catchy phrase that has been tossed around. It's a good title. It's a good title. Um, And why do we call it due process paranoia? Well, basically, this comes from a 2015, the uh, Queen Mary University International Arbitration Survey, and they called it due process paranoia as a growing concern among many users of arbitration. And basically what it means is that there's this unsaid reluctance by tribunals to act decisively in certain situations due to the fear that award will be challenged or giving a party a basis to set aside the award on the grounds that they don't have the Full opportunity to present their case, Um, and what the users of arbitration see is that these tribunals are being weak, that they're being paranoid, that it's uneconomic, wasteful, delay, costly to the clients, Um, and so. But I mean, I've seen this in practice as well, where you just have an arbitral tribunal who's just willing to let it all in uh, because they don't want to risk the award being set aside because a procedural decision by the arbitral tribunal refusing a, something to be let in is Im- immediate red flag for someone to be like, okay, now we have something that we can yeah. use as a ground. But is that a
0: rational fear, though? Do you think if you would look at it empirically, and maybe someone has, are there more challenges year on year if we look historically? Are our parties being more reckless or, or just speculative in bringing set-aside cases, do you think, so that it's rational for arbitrators to hedge... The words, or is it more of an irrational, like, b- better to be safe than sorry kind of thing?
1: I think it's rational in the sense that more challenges are being brought on those grounds, but to think about how many are successful is a different story. Um, so is it rational? Like, wh- what are you really scared of? Are you really scared that the award's going to be challenged in the first place, or the award will actually be set aside? Um, and in, you know, several jurisdictions, including Sweden, there hasn't been that many that have successfully been set aside on this ground. So the question is, and the debate between the community is whether this is a rational paranoia or whether there is a justification. Is there a justification for them doing this or is it an irrational paranoia as as the title states? Um, And the focus of this debate is primarily on efficiency. Um, But, you know, we need to make sure that the tribunal is act, are the, is the tribunal acting prudently in saying that they're going to let something in. And usually, I mean, usually parties are not acting in bad faith. So if you have that basic assumption that they're not ask, acting in bad faith, if they find a piece of evidence late um, that was not known to them and they requested to be sent in, the tribunal will often err on the side of saying, okay, let's let it in, give the other side a, an opportunity to comment, and then what's the harm? Mm. Well, the harm is... On the other side is that it's costly and that it delays arbitration. I mean, you have, for example, ECMIA has now delayed several arbitrations because the tribunal wants to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to comment instead of them making an assertive
0: decision saying this doesn't even apply. It's interesting, but there are other cases where tribunals have gone the other way. I think there's at least one ECMIA case or one case where intra-EU matters might be relevant. I can't remember which one it is now, but I remember reading, I think on iReporter, that one tribunal said, well, it's too late. I mean, right? we, we can't take this in now. We're about to render our reward. It's way too late. Sorry. And they had rejected the, I assume, the state's proposal to introduce Akhmering to the record and have the other party comment on it. Right. So, see, yeah, that's an example of a tribunal being
1: apparently not weak. You know, a a tribunal making a decision because you know what? In these these especially investment cases, you have live disputes that are like living, breathing things that are constantly happening. It's almost impossible to. I mean, it's impossible to say, okay, now nothing's going to happen in this investment that has last decades and will continue to last decades. Like any things will constantly be happening. So you just have to put your foot down at some point. And it's also,
0: I guess. What matters is when the tribunal, in this case, then rejects the, the 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 party that wants to introduce something new at a late stage. It's the way in which they do it as well. Yes, it's not you're not rejecting due process simply by rejecting a claim. No, it's the way in which you do it. If it's recent and it's timely and it's reasonable, then of course it's it's like with the. Um, the arbitrators who do not participate—that we also discussed on some other segment earlier in season one And deliberations. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. if you were given the opportunity to participate and everything was like formally there, but you you just didn't participate yourself, right? That doesn't mean that you know your v- due process rights were violated, right? Because you were given the opportunity. So if if you can like argue why you want to have this case introduced at a late stage, and the tribunal weighs pros and cons and you know efficiency versus finality or whatever. And then the reason and they say no, yeah. you, know, you don't necessarily have a due process violation claim, I think. No, I'm, no. But
1: if you think about, for example, in investment cases where of, uh, oftentimes a law will be the basis for the violation of the treaty. And let's say the government says, well, when we change governments in a couple months after the hearing... If we change governments in a couple of months the plan is to change the law so there won't be a violation anymore and that will affect damages and interest and future damages so let's wait and the tribunal really has to put their foot down but there is paranoia to be like well they they just admitted that they're going to change their behavior so how can we not let that in yeah um so there's but there's like you're saying it's just a basis a, a, a function of procedural fairness um, and there's people that have justified this paranoia, or just like the question you were asking, whether it's a justified um, or a rational idea. But there's some reasons for being cautious. Um, the first one being that arbitration is a one-stop shop. Uh, you can't bring the arbitration again. It can't be appealed. So the tribunals will say, okay, well, this is the only time the parties will be able to resolve their dispute and have their their cases heard. Let's let everything in because you know, they're not going to have a chance to do it again, that's one. The second one is that the substantive dissatisfaction is probably more likely a result in a challenge of the award if the party also feels procedurally dissatisfied, right, you're going to be like the award sucked because we didn't have a chance to bring in this, this, and this. So usually the losers are going to be the one that bring these types of claims, of course. Um, A procedural request is usually on the record. This is a third rationale. So as I said before, you know, this is going to be on the record as a way for the losing party to then challenge it because it's been on the record and memorialized in the PO or um, in the procedural history of the award. Um, The fourth one, Uh, Making cautious procedural decisions may be compared to paying an insurance premium against an unlikely but extremely damaging event. Um, So if the award is set aside or enforcement is refused, the entire arbitration may have been for nothing. Just because you didn't let in that late piece of evidence, right? Then we all got to go back to the drawing board. Um, And then challenges, challenges take months and they cost, I mean, months on a good day. And they cost a lot of money for the clients, they cost a lot of legal, I mean legal costs back and forth between the parties, it's it's not easy to go through a challenge proceeding. Sometimes they'll stay enforcement, so you're not getting your money. So if you have the users of arbitration being happy, quote unquote, with the process, um, they might be happier knowing that they don't have to go through the challenge. Um, you don't know which jurisdiction it will be set aside in, so you don't know how they view these types of things, so you don't know whether your procedural irregularity in the future... Or no, I mean, you know where it's going to be set aside in. or soft enforce- be, Enforcement. Enforcement, exactly.
0: Under the New York Convention, I guess the, that you didn't have the opportunity to present your case or whatever the Article 5 ground is. Right. So it might happen. You might have enforcement rejected, which is not typically as bad as having the whole thing set aside, but it could be.
1: It could m- maybe where the main yeah. amount of assets are. Um, and the last one that I've found is that complaints due to two, about two process paranoia typically come from parties that found the length and cost of an arbitral proceeding frustrated, but who ultimately win. Um, so you want to err on the side of procedural generosity and allow the late filing of evidence in that case. Mm. Um, so these are the things that speak in favor of procedural cautiousness, but, you know, and another tangential point of this is like splitting the baby, um, and how arbitrators are willing to decide a case on the least controversial grounds, even though that may not be the most relevant to deciding the case because they want to make everyone happy and they don't want to screw up. Um, and that's what it is with this. They'd rather not research when certain late evidence should be filed or not, than actually go through the process and make a possibly more just decision. Um, and I, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on splitting the baby, uh, whether you think that should be done. Yeah. And what they said, I mean, there's been some articles written on this. And I think that they said the better, the, the best way to deal with this is to let everything in because there are so many considerations for cautiousness. but to um, make a cost award more more sensitive, right? So you're saying, okay, we let everything in, but you lost, mm. and some of your requests yeah. were a bit insane. And so you delayed the whole thing. And, exactly. Yeah. So legal costs should be awarded. But in
0: this scenario, because now we're talking about when one party wants to introduce something, mm-hmm. I assume the other party gets to comment. Yes. Normally, before yes, the tribunal does, does anything. Mm-hmm. Then how often do you think it is that that party just for all the reasons we just talked about, is is fine. You say, sure, let it in. Or you immediately go into council mode and you say, no, 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 and then you get counsel <laughs> <it>. Council mode. <laughs>
1: You're never going to let it in. Uh, even, I mean, just because it's late. It's late, it's late, it's late. So you, by definition, have two parties that disagree on whether or not they should be admitted. Yeah. The only, I mean, yeah, you just have, you go into council mode. I mean, I don't want to, I I want to say that I do everything, like, objectively, and but you advocate for your client and there's something... Inherently wrong and giving in late evidence, because usually, mm. unless something comes up, like there's a new change in law or something, mm. any factual piece of evidence will not change the case. Yeah, and any legal, and then you have to decide whether a tribunal, for example, a legal question comes up, whether they sue a sponte can bring up um, that they want to have the parties address a new case that came out that can maybe affect the case,
0: i.e. Achmea. Let me ask you something that's uh, on a very related but still separate mm-hmm. topic, which is something I've been I mean, I'm working on right now as part of my dissertation. So I don't want to oh. give anything away before you know buy the book, <laughs> 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 pay for it. There's uh, but it, it's, it's not it's not an original thought because it's it's been advanced by Remy Gerbay, I think his name is, who used to work at the L.C.I.A. and now is a practicing lawyer and an arbitrator, but who also wrote a doctoral dissertation on arbitral institutions and the type of decision-making they're doing. Mm-hmm. And he discusses due process a lot. And this is interesting. And I've been looking, of course, at the SEC and ICC and their treaty-based work. And I think it's very interesting if you draw a parallel here to where, where institutions are making decisions. So they are also extending deadlines, for example, when one party is late, before there's a tribunal in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They appoint arbitrators. They hear challenges against arbitrators. They designate the place of arbitration. They do a bunch of stuff. But there are new, no due process requirements at all, as we understand it. Typically, when it comes to institutional decision making, the parties don't even get the re- good reasons. They don't get to comment. There's no way to challenge, like if if an institution like says an extension of a time limit. Exactly. Mm. Or like if if an institution says uh, this arbitrator can still be on, reject a challenge against an arbitrator. They don't they don't give reasons for why they reject the challenge, and there's right. no way you can take that. Typically, I guess you can go to the court at the place of arbitration, ask them to like. Uh, I don't know, overruled, you you can't do that, really. So in that scenario, I mean, because in all these cases, if there were no institution involved, these decisions would instead be made by tribunals. Right. They would designate the place of arbitration. They would hear challenges against a colleague, et cetera. And in those cases, you have all these due process requirements, and you can challenge in court at the end of the day if the tribunal does something wrong. Mm Mm-hmm but if the institution is the one making the supposed you know procedural yeah. mistake there's no way you can challenge it really that's
1: really a... interesting yeah no i mean what, what you can't set it aside on procedural regularity because of an institution decision no because
0: they formally don't make decisions no but in practice it's sort of a blurred line situation that they make some decisions that can still influence the procedure although they seem to be like administrative on the face of it yeah Appointing an arbitrator is a big thing. It's a big thing in a dispute. This is thesis-worthy, Joe. Thank you.
1: And you're talking about this in your
0: dissertation? Yes, I I want to. I'm trying to get all the the pieces together. That's why I was asking you now. I was hoping you would provide me with like a unifying <laughs> thread that would tie my <laughs> thoughts together.
1: No, I mean it it it's it. It makes sense, and I think it is very related to this because the arbitral institution is also an organization that it has clients, which is the arbitral users, arbitration users. So they need to make sure that everyone's happy, and they also need to make sure that that there's the practical realities of dealing with arbitrators that are busy. So, and I remember working at the SCC, thinking about extensions. I never thought about okay, well, what are the parties going to think about this and their due
0: process rights? I never thought about that. Maybe. Exactly, and you're also in that scenario. It's a it's a at least in theory, it's a collective decision-making as well. Right. Where when the tribunal makes a decision, it's very clear that it is a tribunal. But when the institution does it, it's like, it's a, unless you have, like, I think at exit, that you have a legal secretary, like mm-hmm. a, a, an identified person doing all the administration, but that's typically not the case. You know you what's interesting the... with that is
1: when you have multiple challenges, and you've seen a lot of cases where, wasn't there was a recent case where, I think it was Yves Duran was challenged, like, four times, and he had to decide on his own challenge. So in that case, it wasn't that big of a problem. Or you could you could you know locate the procedural regularity because the decision was made by the tribunal. But in cases where decisions of challenges to arbitrator where the tribunal has been constituted, for example, if there's an appointing authority, yeah, then you have the appointing authority making multiple decisions, and right. they have to accept the challenge or not
0: accept the challenge. You, you mean accept? The, I mean hear it. Yes. Or a, yeah. Yeah. Hear it, it, hear, it, hear it. Hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And but then. And do they make a decision to accept it or not accept the ch- challenge? No, I mean this is—they the, always deal with it,
0: uh, with very few exceptions. No reasons are ever given, right? Not even to the parties, right? So I mean, in theory, I guess you—you you, you first have to look at the admissibility of the challenge. Right, is it timely and yada yada? There are rules for that, and then you have to rule on the merits of, of the actual challenge. But that's just supposition on my end. I'm guessing because yeah. I haven't seen any challenge decisions, but just a few ones.
1: But that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's interesting that there's no recourse against an institution. When yeah,
0: sometimes, I mean, I, this is what I'm trying to develop. Like, uh-huh. I'm trying to argue that you should be able to, at least in some... The problem is, for example, if the decision that you want to uh, challenge or, or, I don't know, set aside, appeal, whatever, is the decision to designate the place of arbitration, mm-hmm. which court do you go to if you want to challenge? It could, because by definition, there is no place of arbitration. So the ICC says uh, Paris, but, yeah. but n- neither party wanted Paris, and say hypothetically, both parties agree that we will have the place of arbitration in Switzerland, and then the ICC wants it to be in Paris, and the right. ICC says Paris, although both parties. Th- this wouldn't happen, but, no. but just for, for argument. Yeah, exactly. Which court do you go to then? Because if your argument is we don't want Paris to be the place of arbitration, you can't go to the courts in Paris and say you, you guys... Don't have jurisdiction because this is not the place of arbitration. Right. You can't go anywhere else because no. there is no place for So it's it's a whole like uh, chicken and the egg thing. As well. so which is which is the competent court or the forum to go to challenge an institution's procedural error. But
1: as parties, you have the arbitration agreement that says that you appoint the S or the, you have the SEC administ- or the ICC administer to your dispute, and in the rules it says if no seat has been designated by the parties or can be agreed upon by the parties, one shall be des- designated by the institution. Yeah.
0: So, but you could argue a, a due process violation if the parties agreed, for example, and the institution anyway designated something. And then where does that go? Yeah, in theory. But I mean th- these things happen. Reality yeah. always trumps what you can make up. So ev- even though it sounds stupid, I'm sure this has happened. Right. Maybe not with the ICC, but with the smaller institution somewhere that they, mm-hmm. they did something that the parties had expressly agreed not to do and then you can't challenge what the institution does, unlike when the tribunal does it in an ad hoc scenario. Interesting. Right?
1: Yeah. Good. There should be like an institutional appellate body for institutional Exactly, decisions. a multilateral uh, yeah. <laughs> annulment committee for... Should we write <laughs> our own <laughs> convention, John? Yeah. It's going to be called the Brian Convention. Sorry, called it. Okay. All right. All right. We do- interesting we discussion. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's, let's bring on our unsung hero, Joel, uh, Jan Kunster.
0: Finally, we have Jan Kunster on air and on video. But no one can see it. No, that's for a- true. We haven't expanded the podcast concept to, to a video cast, but we can see Jan, and you're in London. Welcome, Jan,
2: finally. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Um, We've heard your voice,
1: not your voice. We've said your name so many times on the podcast. We're so excited that finally everyone can
0: see the man behind the music.
2: Yeah, no, thank you very much for that. I'm your biggest fan.
0: (laughs) Which is strange because you're the only one who hears everything, including the things that, for good reason, no one else is hearing.
2: Oh oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I get to enjoy all the all the dirty dirty words. Um, <laughs> the listeners have no idea.
0: Exactly. So we had a, We should maybe mention, by way of background, for our listeners, Jan is uh, one of the few people who can work as an editor and do all the, the techie audio stuff, but is also an arbitration lawyer in his uh, in his own mind. Right. We were looking for somebody with that particular combination of skills uh, for a long time before I realized you existed. The only problem being you already had a job, but you've spent <laughs> many nights pro bono for the Arbitration Station podcast.
2: Oh, uh, no, it's an honor. I have to say you keep thanking me on air, which is very nice, but I must say I'm enjoying it uh, every moment. It's, what can uh, you say, uh, though? No, really, thanks.
0: we have you on now. <laughs> I know. We'll cut <laughs> you off if
2: you're saying No, I mean, it's a privilege to be working on a, on a project like this. It's big.
1: Do you have people talk to you about the podcast?
2: Oh, n- not to me. Oh, everybody knows about it. And I say, oh, yeah, I'm helping you and Brian I know them. <laughs> <laughs> They're my friends. Uh, so Although Brian thinks you're from Croatia
0: and no, not from I, the Czech I, Republic. That was a mistake.
1: <laughs> but that's why we have you here to talk about the Czech Republic and talk about Prague as a seat of arbitration as the final episode in our seat of arbitration series.
0: We end yeah. with this beautiful, extraordinary city, really. Is that your hometown?
2: Uh, Prague, yeah, yeah, I was born in Prague
0: I know you lived there and studied there But sometimes people grow up elsewhere and move to the capital That's got to be amazing to to grow up in that kind of cultural ancient city And have that around you as as a kid
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it was nice, I can't complain I have only happy memories I remember, actually, I remember I was 13 I remember when CME Lauda was on TV Everybody talked about it Really? And, uh, and
0: you were like, I want to be an arbitration lawyer. Yeah. Uh,
2: no, no, that would be great. But uh, no, no, I just, I forgot about it. Uh, and then I read, about, uh, <laughs> I read about read about the case, I remembered.
0: But that case, was that, or those cases, of course, because there were two cases with just the whole thing. Were they that big? So that they were on, like, front-page news, even in when, 2002 or whenever it was?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the main guy, uh, Zhelezny, he was the boss of the most popular czech tv station at the time and obviously it was it was presented like the americans are suing the czech republic because of this guy's cunning plan to defraud them or something like that i remember hearing about it um so yeah it was big it was quite big
0: that's exactly the narrative that we hear over and over again now with investor-state arbitration, but it happened way before yeah. in, in the Czech Republic. Well,
1: let's dive into it. I mean, can you just kind of set the stage for what the arbitration uh, atmosphere or the legislation is in Prague?
2: So I, I prepared. <laughs> I prepared two topics for you. The first is the seat of arbitration, and the second is the new Czech model BIT, which is sort of unusual in in the context of the latest. BITs, you, I think last episode you mentioned the Dutch yeah. model BIT and how it, it's talked about. So the Czech one is a bit different and I'll, I want to just briefly mention because I don't think many people know about this. So Prague as the seat of arbitration, do you think is Prague a good seat for international arbitration? Would you advise your clients to choose Prague um, as a seat? Uh,
1: n- n- no I don't have any clients <laughs> good. good one <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. no I mean because I, I don't really know anything about it
0: actually and I think also from my outside perspective it also seems in the type of disputes where you would have clients that, that maybe would be thinking about Prague you would go to like Vienna instead or yeah. some other place that has been profiling itself as right. the place to take central slash East European disputes and then yeah. shadowed out all the other potential fora
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you, you stole my conclusion. That's, that's my conclusion. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, We're done but, here. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for
0: having you. <laughs> Thanks for coming.
2: <laughs> if you, you say, Brian, that you don't know anything about it, um, luckily for us, a few months ago, there was an ICC conference in Prague. I don't know if you went, you um, and It was on exactly that topic, Prague as uh, the seat of arbitration. Oh. I I didn't go myself, but I spoke to my friends who went, and as you would expect at the conference, they discussed all the usual suspects, like like the New York Convention, the the Czech Arbitration Act, all the formalities for agreement to arbitrate, arbitrability and enforcement procedure, etc. And the general conclusion was that, not surprisingly, Prague is, is a great venue. It's, uh, it's, it's arbitration-friendly. The right. <laughs> uh, but but then no, it's, it's a great venue, but it's not a great seat uh, of arbitration. The problems are a classic one. It's not an unstrilled model law country. Check. Judges uh, uh, don't have experience with arbitration. Another check. They're, no there's pun intended. There. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. There's, there's a wide reading of uh, public policy. As, as the ground for setting aside. and uh, yeah, the courts are not really helpful in assisting uh, arbitrations. You know I can't imagine an emergency arbitrator trying to enforce anything uh, in check. Oh. Yeah, so, so the, the, these problems are quite usual to not so arbitration friendly jurisdictions. Uh, and you talked about the cliche of arbitration friendliness and unfriendliness before. But I think with regards to the Czech Republic, it's, it's very relative because it depends what country, what jurisdiction you compare it to, because Prague is arbitration-friendlier than some other countries. But if you compare it to uh, Stockholm, London, uh, uh, Amsterdam, uh, Vienna or Frankfurt, uh, Geneva, obviously it, it doesn't stand a chance,
0: it's interesting, There's a maybe you'll get into this when we move on to the, to the model BIT, but in the investment treaty world, for obvious uh, unfortunate reasons, the Czech Republic is, is a big player because it has been the respondent in so many disputes and sort of built an experience. So from an investment treaty arbitration perspective exclusively, the Czech Republic seems to be like punching above its weight and you have a lot of good people in governments and law firms that are experienced with treaty-based cases... But it's not the same yes. in, in like the general framework or the commercial arbitration sphere. It seems like it's more of a specific thing to, to the government being involved in treaty cases.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly correct. I'm, I'm gonna touch upon that later because, in investment treaty arbitration realm, the, the position's quite unique. Um, I should say very unique <laughs> uh, to, just The beauty of interviewing Jan But uh, in, in investment treaty arbitration It's a different, uh, different case
1: Where do these I mean just totally practical level uh, I mean this, I'm the practical side of this Where does it uh, Let's say there's an interim measure And uh, arbitration seated in the Czech Republic Where does that go Or if you're setting aside an award in the Czech Republic where would that go or in Prague
2: uh, it would go to the the first instance to, to the okay. district court and actually um, yeah let, why not let let me let me jump into one of the cases I wanted to give as an example perfect because um, and you you know about this because you reminded me of this case um, it's Binder v Czech Republic oh it's one of my um, favorite cases <laughs> It's, it's, it's an investment treaty case, which was seated in Prague. Uh, so we have one case, and you're, you dug it up somewhere during your research, on your th- dissertation, right?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it's... There are a few other NAFTA cases which are exceptional for other reasons, but it's very, very unusual that you have a non-exit case, treaty case that is seated in the respondent state. For obvious reasons, yeah. like you don't want to have that that the courts of that right. state supervise the proceedings, and it, that is exactly what happened as well. That's why we know about it that it was subsequently yeah. challenged in in a court in Prague. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So is this is this the only case that was seated in the respondent state, or are there any other? It's
0: the only BIT case. You do have a few NAFTA cases oh, okay. because NAFTA cases must be seated in a NAFTA state. So well, some of the um, Canadian and U.S. cases were. Canada or US has been respondent. They've been seated in the US. But it's the only bit case for sure. I know that for a fact. And I don't know, I can't recall on the top of my head why. Like who made the decision. Oh why. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know really? now. I know. I
2: yeah. Can you still put it in your dissertation or it wasn't Yeah, I, wasn't I, I, I probably
0: a, have, but I just forgot about it. I don't know if. I hope you told me if you've known this for a while, known you for some extra research a while. if, if so, you you some to tell now? <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, so, Binder v. Czech Republic. Mr. Mr. Binder, Mr. R.J. Binder was of a a German citizen and um, he set up a company in the former Czechoslovakia which provided some custom documentations and other services in connection with uh, cross-border trade Um, but he didn't foresee the dissolution of Czechoslovakia and then he had I think cargo or goods in Slovakia but he had to go through customs again and we don't know the facts very well because it's it's confidential and we know f- about the case only because it was challenged. The award on jurisdiction was challenged before Czech courts. So he was claiming under the Czech-German bit, he claimed breach of FET standard and he claimed damages around 150 to $200 million at that time. The interesting part is that he instructed a law firm, which although renowned they didn't have much experience with investment treaty arbitration, so they talked to the state and they agreed to have the proceedings seated in, in Prague. Oh, ah. um, that's conveniently. unfortunate. Yeah, it yeah, ended yeah, up being yeah. unfortunate, I think, for a while at least, right? For a while, exactly, yeah, for a while. So they agreed to have an ad hoc arbitration, three-person panel, and after the award on jurisdiction, which confirmed, the tribunal confirmed its jurisdiction. Of course, the Czech Republic applied to have to have it annulled at the Czech district court, which uh, obliged and annulled the award. It was in 2009. Uh, the Czech state argued that the bit was terminated because of accession of the Czech Republic to the EU, which the court didn't address. But it addressed the second objection. Uh, the second argument that Mr. Binder was a dual national. It turned out that he was a dual national, and he resided both in in the Czech Republic and Germany. And um, one of Brian's amateur, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what I was going to say, uh, just like Brian, <laughs> but um, we don't know what the tribunal said about this. It it could have been quite interesting arguments. But have, have you addressed dual citizenship on the podcast as a as a substantive?
0: As a happy fun time topic, yeah, I I, I just quizzed Brian on other people,
2: yeah, oh, yeah, okay. but yeah. But we also talked about it substantively.
0: Oh yeah, yeah Venezuela yeah, case mm-hmm. and, and all these. Yes, oh, yes, yeah. we have.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember because all the Czech documentation had him as a Czech national. It didn't have him as dual, so probably he was Czech in Czech and uh, German in Germany, which didn't help him. And the court just annul the award
0: without him being in court. Right. he wasn't even i think served notice or there was some sort of confusion so that that's why i was interested in it because he wasn't actively taking part because he doesn't even, he didn't even know there was a set aside or so he claimed because yeah. he was in germany, he was in germany.
2: <laughs> yeah at this point he hired some swedish lawyers um he he appealed after this at the municipal court and the municipal court vacated the district court's decision for the on jurisdiction could not be reviewed by the Czech courts. Let me, let me explain. There's a, yeah. there's a provision in the Czech Arbitration Act saying that procedural decisions cannot be reviewed.
0: We have a similar thing in the Swedish Arbitration Act, where the distinction is final or not. So in Sweden you can also only challenge final awards, mm-hmm. where the tribunal either says we have no jurisdiction, bye-bye, or where they uh, rule on the merits.
2: Yeah. So, so, when commentators comment on on this case they they say it was a it was a good decision. It was the right decision for not so right reasons. That's a sort of an example of how the Czech courts decide on arbitration.
1: It's a great example because it shows a that there's a problem with the arbitration act and b that the courts don't even know what they're talking. I mean not that they don't know what they're talking about, but they themselves haven't really developed. The case law to be able to rely on certain jurisprudence constant on how to how to interpret.
0: But these. this was t- ten years ago, almost, and yeah. the Czech Republic yeah. has now been a member of the EU for a long time, and, and also seen a lot of cases as a uh, respondent state. Do you think it's changed? Is it is it moving in some direction, or is arbitration still not a priority among the, the in the judiciary or in, in the legislation in oh,
2: I, th- I think it's changing sort of naturally it's a generational change it's about legal culture my uh, friends or colleagues who are now waiting to be appointed as judges or well, assistant judges wouldn't decide like this would know what to do or where to seek information but um, that's that's a question will they ever change because it, it's, a, it's a vicious circle you don't have clients you don't have arbitrations you, you don't uh, judges don't uh, get exposure to to arbitration, so I'm afraid that the, that the outlook is a bit grim. Uh, and <laughs> so
1: there's no reforms on the horizon.
2: Go for the beer. Go for the beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when I talked about this to my colleagues, they they said, uh, "Why are you talking negatively about your country? That there won't be a good podcast." But um, that's that's probably why I also prepared the Czech model bit to talk about.
0: Oh, I was going to say that's, that's an area where you can speak. What a more great transition, <laughs> probably.
2: <laughs> that I think is is more positive because the Czech Republic has uh, has quite a quite an experience with investment treaty arbitration. Lots of cases. Why do you think that is?
0: Why do you think they have a lot of cases? Yeah. It's a, it's actually a good question, but I guess the obvious, the like, guesswork would be one, they have a lot of investment treaties, yeah. and they were all concluded more or less in like the li- late 80s, early 90s, in that kind of generation of bits where arbitration clauses are very open-ended, all the definitions are open-ended, like the old generation of BITs. And then, of course, they transitioned from a market economy yeah. to, a, to a market economy. From a not so market based economy, and that transition, I guess privatization is a huge yeah. breeding ground for disputes. So many many of these cases are from the 1990s, at least the ones prior to the now all the older renewables cases, but ECT cases. But many of those, like Binder and CME and all these, they are emanating from market reforms in the 90s.
2: Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. But that doesn't explain why it's the Czech Republic and not Slovakia or or Poland. It's more of the reputation because it concluded a lot of treaties quickly and because of Lauda and CME, it uh, lost and paid quickly. Some say that it has a, or had a reputation of, of an easy opponent. But another reason is that the number of bids that the Czech Republic entered into is much higher than its, its neighbouring countries. It's close, I think it's closer to Germany than to, to Slovakia. And also another interesting fact is that a lot of, a lot of the claimants are actually Czech citizens using SPVs or shell companies.
0: Ah, which is sneaky.
2: The old ones with broad definitions of, of investors and no DOB clauses. Um, so like a mixture of these reasons, I think it is.
0: And now there's that's a good side to this. Cynically speaking, every I've been to Prague a few times, and I always meet a lot of people like yourself, young lawyers, who are exposed to a tremendously interesting caseload. There's like a group of people at the Czech government working both with the treaties and with the disputes. Like straight out of law school, you get to work for your own government doing actual casework, which happens nowhere else, basically.
2: Yes, yes, that's that's absolutely true. You grow up. Uh, knowing about it so when you when you have it at school you at least put some background some facts behind the behind what you learn yeah yeah definitely definitely because
1: now they have their own section of the ministry that only works with being a respondent in investor state cases right yeah yeah and there's there's some woman who's famously known for traveling around to she does the conference circuit and she's just always on a panel as someone from the Czech Ministry. She minister. was in Sydney. Yeah, she was Marie in Sydney. Marie Telasova. Yes. Something. Uh, and she just has this whole thing of being like, "We're not that bad. We're working hard." <laughs> oh yeah, we well,
2: this. she she is right. She well they they don't disclose all the all the cases, but uh, yeah, the majority of the cases the Czech Republic won, and it has. A, quite a good experience with dealing with the, ca- the cases, defending cases. So, so yeah, yeah so there's a Ministry of Finance deals with the defence and with inter- EU bids. There's Ministry of Industry, which deals with EU treaties. Then you have Minister of Foreign Affairs that deals with everything because they are treaties, uh, international <laughs> treaties. Uh, so it's... That's, wow. It's an interesting mixture. But the main one is the Minister of Finance who defends the cases and manages the cases. Uh, in terms of investment policy, there are also Czech investors claiming under these BITs and other investment protection treaties abroad. So so the, the, Czech, the new Czech model bit is surprisingly quite balanced. I know you, you might expect that given the experience and given... How many cases the Czech Republic had against it you would expect it to have something like the Dutch model or the new generation of, of yeah. bits but it's it's a strange mix for example there are there are references to right to regulate just, just very briefly right to regulate or the preamble is different it's stating like non-commercial goals and nice stuff like that but it has it has an unqualified FET provision it has it has the old provision oh really yeah 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 which is a very unique uh, I'd say um, <laughs> because a lot of the new model bids are copying either CETA or, or the, the European model or they have their own definitions
0: would um, you say or guess that part of the explanation might be that they are also taking Czech investors into account yeah in the model
2: yeah yeah definitely definitely um that's part of the reason and maybe my guess would be that the number of cases that the czech republic loses is is not that high now because they know how to defend themselves yeah definitely one of the reasons
1: any other interesting additions to the new model bit
2: there is the the indirect expropriation is is defined more in detail than in the old in the old bits. Also, there are provisions preventing parallel proceedings. <laughs> me louder. Thing is still making its mark. <laughs> yes, it has a lot of new modern provisions, as you see in other bits. But it, the old provisions are the unqualified FET, and there's no code of conduct for arbitrators or mm. no roster or not anything like that. It's it's all based on the old um, ISDS.
1: They had such an opportunity to be revolutionary, and they
0: just half-assed it. <laughs> or maybe they were more balanced. Or maybe they're more <laughs> balanced. Blah blah blah. You've been a uh, not necessarily a good ambassador, but a good independent critical voice looking in from the outside at the the Czech arbitration world. That's what we should do for the whole f- next season. We should have a, the, c- the counterpart to the previous season's place of arbitration. We should have people who don't like the right. place of arbitration in question and then go <laughs> through the exact same city. No, team. I don't know <laughs> if you can find a New Yorker
1: who hates New York. <laughs> 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 Victoria went a little, you know, she was a huge <laughs> proponent of New York as a seat of arbitration.
0: But oh, um, Are you ready for, uh, for a special Happy Fun Time, Jan?
1: Yes, Jan is staying with us for Happy Fun Time. We oh, yeah. roped him into another
2: one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I prepared some some questions.
1: All right, well, let's all crack our beers. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> We have an interesting, happy, fun time topic this time around because Jan will be taking the microphone and interview us for um, a little bit to kind of get a background on who we are in the podcast, how it started, and where we're looking to in the future. We think. We don't really know what he's going to ask. So. Oh, yeah. We don't know anything, actually. So we're, we are all yours, Jan. Until we think it gets out of hand, then we'll
2: take it right back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank I'm you. still a control freak. No. Thanks so much for for delegating this uh, this exclusive competence in hosting to me, but uh, yeah, in return, I I have prepared some tough questions for you, some professional and some personal. Uh, right, and and all this this is of course so you can talk about yourselves um, for a change. Um. <laughs> Joel <laughs> hates that. <laughs> I'm Swedish and. I'll, well, that not that the only
0: thing we're doing? <laughs> so that we have a podcast.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think the the listeners know that, that the podcast isn't about yourselves or your dissertations or uh, your Jewish grandmothers. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's very But uh, no, seriously, I think, actually, what I think is that this is exactly what we listeners like to have to two very likable people talking to us about our favorite topics and and this is the this is i think a big reason why the podcast is is successful so i think you've done an amazing job two seasons of the arbitration station thanks you thanks. And, and thank you yeah thank so, you, you. <laughs> um, oh and of course you traveled to sydney uh, and brought the ICA conference to the common people like us Uh, which was great I really liked it Uh, eager
1: for the people
2: (laughs) Um, and uh, like I said from my experience talking to people here everybody the students I talked to some LSE students they all knew about the arbitration station which uh, that's so cool yeah it was so cool so I think I'll be speaking uh, on behalf of all our listeners when I say thank you so much for all this really fantastic achievement we're smiling i know speaking speaking of which my first question is how how do you cope with fame do you do you get (laughs) do you do you you get recognized Ah. on the street
1: well joel is so obsessed with fame he started to get botox and he's getting a facelift next week because he's just very um vain in that in that way uh no me and or Joel and I have very funny stories about um, getting noticed, and I think we mentioned it on the podcast, not noticed, but I was arbitrating at the FDI mood and someone turns to me and says, that voice sounds familiar, um, and then I told her that it was the arbitration station. And so I, I, I think it's it's fun because it's completely the opposite of what this job is.
0: That's true. It's a lot of attention rather than fame. I think fame is a a strong (laughs) word in this context, and it's only voice-based so far, fortunately. So no recognitions other than the few voice recognitions in very specific contexts like mood courts. Yeah, Yeah, because we have our cartoon faces on the website and on our Twitter, so people
1: don't really know the the exact likeness that they're looking for.
2: Yeah, was this deliberate?
1: No. No, Joel (laughs) just had one, and I was jealous that he had a cartoon of himself, (laughs) so I got
0: one. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's, it's like five bucks. You can get it from this guy in Philippines or Indonesia who, who, yeah. who does thousands per day for a living. We should get one of
1: Yann. Yeah, well, yeah, really. Should we'll we put it that? on yeah. the website.
0: Take, take a photo, send it to us, yes. and okay. we will have this guy Whoa. do a cartoon one. You can use it for your CV.
2: <laughs> 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 Thank you very much, um, and good to know that you're still humble and um, didn't get fame go into your heads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but now I have a question more going more to the past. Uh, how did you two first meet?
1: We met at Stockholm's uh, Chamber of Commerce when we were at the Arbitration Institute. And I had been working for like a month or two. And then Joel walked in with his coiffed hair. And I was like, who is this guy? Uh, and why is he trying to take my job? <laughs> uh, even though I was on secondment, I was... Uh, threatened for no reason and so I d- actually didn't get I didn't even want to. you
0: were my superior yeah I, I was technically I worked for you yeah it's
1: not like I was taking your job I was doing your dirty work yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, and then we didn't talk for like the first month because Joel was just in and out a bit and then how did we start talking I don't know <laughs> Joel was being nosy or something yeah
0: I have no memory actually how it happened but that's that's where we met and then mm. I guess we just liked each other and started Talking and then it just kept on going from that. Wish we had a better story.
2: Oh, but yeah, who, whose idea was it to to make a podcast?
0: I think it was
1: Joel's. Actually, yes, I think it so was. Too. We were <laughs> sitting at a bar and <laughs> drinking, and we were getting into one of our extremely nerdy uh, discussions about an inane topic and in arbitration. And and we we I mean we were laughing and we dealt with it in such a you know carefree way that it was just a bit relaxed and uh, Joel's like I think we, sh- we should do a podcast this would be hilarious and then he said that a couple of times and then I said well I think I know how to record that
0: <laughs> kind of don't laugh Jan because you're like you don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> uh, right? Yeah I think yeah that's pretty, and we also listened to the same kind of podcast we yes. had like a similar, similar uh, frame of reference for what we wanted to do and what could be mm. done and then we went on the iTunes app and
1: searched arbitration and realized there wasn't anything mm. um, in the format that we would want, which was a bit more casual, talking about the real issues, not generic, You know, talking about real international arbitration issues exclusively and not international trade law with yeah. one or two episodes in arbitration. So then we said, there's a void, and we could fill it. And we know how thirsty arbitration lawyers are about getting information.
2: Yeah, yeah, but you li- did you listen to Mike Mecklerath's uh, podcasts?
0: He was actually the first yeah. person almost uh, who, who uh, to reach out to us. I mean, he in the in the world of established arbitration lawyers, he was mm. very enthusiastic. And other people contacted us saying, "You should talk to this guy." Yeah. because he, he I listened to it only after we started ours actually, mm. but it, it was so good, but so ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah, in so many ways because there was no you know, you know serial. Hadn't happened yet, where, or like podcasts like that that yeah. brought podcasts into the pocket of every person under the age of forty-five. So he was he was uh, ahead of the curve, whereas we, I think, got lucky timing-wise uh, and could do benefit from technological development. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I remember listening to his podcasts. I really liked them. It was it, he he interviewed Thomas Walde um, in person.
0: I, oh, he passed away in like. 2008.
2: I know, I know. That's why it, it's, it, it's really old. He was, he was way ahead of his time.
0: How's, did I even have internet access? Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 Well know. Next question I have here for you is um, could you briefly tell our listeners what made you study law uh, and then what made you specialize in, in arbitration? That's an interesting question.
0: That's yeah, a good question. Better than the answers will be, I think. For me, I have, w- yet again, there's no good story. I did a, I studied a lot of other stuff. I think it disclosed a few episodes ago that I wanted to be a librarian or work in a bookshop for, <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. And then, it, it, So I did a lot of that like literature and stuff, and then I studied political science, and eventually I realized I just needed to get a job. I had applied for law school been accepted and rejected the spot maybe two or three years in a row because it just seemed rational but boring like something i should do but i'm i don't want to and then i just grew up and realized i need an actual job and and uh, committed to law school and then arbitration was just a, a random it was for me it was actually investment arbitration more than commercial arbitration, which I think is rare. Very rare. Because I was interested in public international law, but I also wanted to do something that had sort of a practical, real life thing, and I was looking for that. I was into competition law for a while, which is similar in the sense that it's like international transactions, but also public policy, politics stuff. But then when I found investment treaty arbitration and read a few books by Jan Paulson, it was a good good match. It, It all came together. And then luckily, as you know, Jan, we started the master's program in Uppsala, Uh, right about the time that I when I I was trying to figure out what to do with my life so uh, there were there was an academic opportunity they wanted people with the scholarly ambitions uh, junior people to to be involved so it just worked out that I could start on that path for me
1: getting into law was a really it was not a decision Uh, when I was two years old my parents said that I often said no you know why when they said like oh Brian do you want to do this and I would say no you know why and then they said, you're gonna be a lawyer. And then my mom's Jewish. And so she said, of course, you have to be one of two things, a lawyer or a doctor. So they just kept in brainwashing me to be a lawyer. So when I was graduating university, I said, what am I gonna do? I obviously am gonna to go to law school because that's what I was taught. I was brainwashed. And then I went to law school and I realized, oh, <laughs> I don't know if I wanna do all this. And then I did a special course with Horacio Grigiano On and um, Claudia Frutos-Peterson, who's now the managing partner at Curtis in DC, and I did a, a course in international commercial arbitration, and I thought this is exactly what I want to do. I found what I wanted to do. I took the course, um, loved it, and then uh, American University had did not have a team for the Frankfurt investment moot, so we found out about the moot, and then I was... A par- I was um, a representative for our student organization, you know, our ABA, it's, a, it's called. And they, um, so I knew how to get funding. So I got funding, we put like a little ragtag team together and then we did the Frankfurt moot and that's how I got to Stockholm mm. uh, because one of the judges was Swedish. So it kind of all fell into place once I realized that arbitration was what I wanted to do.
0: But you were always very international, it seems yeah and more then so I, than me at least
1: and then i saw public international law and like ran the other way <laughs> i was like border disputes <laughs> that's not very fun uh, well, i mean you speak more languages and you had always it seems i wanted to work abroad yeah and this is the only way as a lawyer mm. to do it mm. uh and so it just seemed like the i i came a, on a gold mine nice nice i
2: uh really both really interesting stories um Really. <laughs> Dry humour. Uh, I wasn't. It wasn't sarcastic. <laughs> oh, I, I meant it really. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <coughs> so so how is it like working with uh, with each other? How's it working? How's it working? With, uh, it
0: is. We can say you can say so many uh, bad things on other topics, but working together, I have to say, is a pleasure. It, it's just seamlessly. We know each other so well at this point, so it's it's just. And we're also equally lazy and hardworking at the same time. Exactly. So it's, One of us is always working when the other is lazy, and then we have a natural like back and forth. You do that now so that I can do nothing
1: for a while. It was such a natural divide because Joel does the social media and answers emails and, and listener outreach, which I find completely cumbersome and tedious but Joel is on it and engaging our you know mm. people on Twitter and stuff like that but there was no question of being like who's going to do the Twitter feed it Joel just started doing it and just like I started doing the editing and then I outsourced <laughs> uh, and then what I mean what else do I do for the podcast I mean it just happens sometimes and then and then other divides happened where it was like I do more commercial Joel does more investment stuff I do more practical stuff. Mm. Joel does more academic. So, the, n- the divide just happened so naturally that it made,
0: that it made it pretty easy. Have we fought? I don't think so. I have never fought with a single person in my life. I'm so <laughs> afraid of conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather just give up and walk away. So. No, yeah. Yeah. You were th- way more
1: <laughs> combative. I am very <laughs> combative. Uh, I would. S- no, we haven't fought. No one's dropped the ball. Yeah, we both have it similarly at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's understanding. I mean, it's it's equal parts uh, laziness, equal parts hardworking. I think you're right. Yeah, and not having you know, it's we and that's how we approach the tone of the arbitration station. Is that it's yeah. supposed to be relaxed, and so it would be completely counterintuitive for us to hold each other to this gold standard of you know diligence and reliability. <laughs>
2: so, do you have a do you have a do you have a favorite podcast? I mean, do, f- do you have a favorite episode?
0: It will come as no surprise to the regular listeners that I very much enjoyed the conversation with, with Taylor on her book. That I think yeah. I've been mentioning that about six times after yeah. we had that. That was very good. And good also ed- I, ed- good I enjoyed ed- ed- Brian uh, talking about traveling with his colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> <Hate> <laughs> it. Um, I think
1: I think s- I would answer this in two parts. I think where if... When I had talked to people and they're like, N- tell me one episode I should listen to. I tell them t- the Taylor St. John one just because it's the most uh, innovative, I think, on an old topic. But uh, I think we're at our best when we talk about languages. Um, I think that's when we have a good report. And I remember editing it and sending it to Joel and being like, this was a good one. Uh, and then as far as where I think the podcast should be, I think the arbitration, uh, the Africa one was a great one because we were talking to two people on the african continent about you know how their work in africa and 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 moving africa forward as you know in the arbitration community but also talking about nigeria and the legal reforms happening in nigeria to think that the two of us sitting in the first season would be able to do something like that
0: that's uh, pretty exciting i think the segment we've received the most feedback from also is the 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 not so happy fun uh, happy fun time the me too discussion that we had which was not rehearsed or thought through that much but was a very heartfelt conversation that I felt strongly about that uh, was was, timing wise happened uh, at a time when this was being discussed uh, of course in general society but also in our business and I think it was uh, something that I that that I felt strongly for which is maybe not always the case
2: when you're talking about procedural (laughs) Yeah, and and is it also the the most downloaded episode or do you have some data on
1: that? Oh, shit, I don't know. Data's not our strong suit. Um
2: <laughs> we we were actually
1: thinking about whether we would talk about how many listeners we have. Um I don't I it it keeps growing, so it's hard to tell. We mm. keep, because we, you know, each episode we get more and more people. So it looks like the newest episode always gets the most listeners, but yeah. it's just that more people know about it. So it's really, it's hard to tell.
2: Yeah, 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 makes sense.
1: And the number of, the number of listeners, we can't even corner, but I mean, ballpark, millions, I think. <laughs> 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 <Just> kidding.
0: <laughs> we should be able to figure it down, break break it down episode per episode, right? There's got to be a function somewhere in the software, because that's a good, qu- Jan's question is good. We haven't thought about that. Which is the most popular one? Yeah, not that it necessarily is, because it's. I I think it seems from what I've been able to gather so far that it's a pretty consistent uh, listenership. It's not that we we spike because we do something super extraordinary for one episode. It's rather Mm. that we have a relatively regular, slowly growing uh, listenership that is loyal people who listen to most of the episodes. How many
2: seasons do you plan to do?
1: Ooh, Joel said double digits in the intro. You haven't heard that yet, Jan, but Joel said double digits. But I think we had this question in the seminar that we had today that when we talked about the arbitration station for SWAN. And um, I think to justify us dedicating this much time, we're going to need support from sponsors, and we're going to need a little bit more um, support to, you know, pay you, Jan, so you're not doing this for free. Uh, if we had that, then then forever
0: but I mean um, I, I need a doctorate also that's a, my big caveat is that I have to finish what I started right after that I'm game for doing this full time forever but yeah it's a big thing that's in, in, in the way of my personal uh, like the next six months or so yeah I think there's a need and it's gonna
1: grow so we're just gonna grow with it as long as we so, have time so would you
2: say that time is the is the uh, hardest or the, or the most difficult part um, when when making a podcast or
1: sound quality sound. Is the <laughs> <most difficult. laughs> uh no it's a lot it's a lot more time it's like a construction project right it's this will take three months and it takes a year and a half mm-hmm. uh and that's what it's like with an episode you think oh we got it all down and we have our transition music let's just throw it together mm. and then oh that person's voice is a bit low there or someone called in the middle of it. And so it just turns into a bit of a project, which is when you come
2: in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> you know, I, so I, I met Mike Mekarath once, uh, during Vienna Vismud, And I asked him why, why he stopped doing that. <laughs> oh, cause I want it more. Uh, and he, he said it was because he spent so much time editing it to make it, to make it perfect. And
0: yeah, did he do it himself? It, apparently he did it himself. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. unwise. You should always delegate to people who are better than <laughs> <Yeah>. you are.
2: <laughs> I think, no, he, he, would be the, he would be a great person to interview, don't you think? Definitely.
0: It's, it's on the books. We've actually, we missed him in Sydney by like 15 minutes. Mm. I had planned, I didn't tell you this, prime. but no, I, you didn't. I had planned to, to interview him there, and we've also talked about doing it. He, because he obviously, not only is he, was he a good mm-hmm. podcaster, he's also a the in-house lawyer in many arbitration settings because yeah. he is a general counsel for such a big company GE uh, so, so he is he is a repeat player so that's a, that's a, we, we what we've been talking about getting more arbitration users on the podcast generally to expand the people we talk to and also talk to clients and people who could see another side, perhaps, of the business than most of those we've been talking to so far. So, and he would, of course, be a natural fit for that
2: yeah. type yeah. of, of uh,
0: conversation. Absolutely, definitely. Uh,
2: you say you want to broaden the range of or the type of people. Uh, what, have you have you thought about inviting somebody from a, a layperson, like say from uh, which has connection with arbitration? You know, we talked about the Economist. Uh, Writing about uh, arbitration mm. or the Wall Street yeah, yeah. Wall Street Journal, uh, like um, journalists, um, because I, you, you, I think can, yeah sorry no no you you go.
0: I was just saying you, you you can tell from the video that we have now that we have that skeptical lawyer frowns so we're like lay people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. Yeah, that's a good point. But, Especially when it comes to investor-state arbitration, it would yeah. be very interesting to have sort of a, an outsider, quote unquote.
2: Yeah, no, because I think it's such a it's such a bubble that we are in, and it's usually I I really like the disconnect between you know when lawyers talk about something and then lay people just understand it differently. I think yeah yeah I think Kai was great in this saying like just don't sign the treaty if you don't you know, yeah, that, that was so hard to understand for, for, famous for lines for <laughs> yeah. if you could invite anybody who would you invite to interview alive or dead
0: mm. Mm. that's an amazing question I know we, uh, uh, we We talked about this today as well a similar thing on, on the seminar you would want to say some very senior arbitrator or a famous person but my my point today when we were talking about this was that those are too professional normally and too established and serious sometimes at least mm. like like well trained politicians you you won't get them to say anything that's podcast friendly sometimes at least uh, it, like the the very su- superstars so it really should be the other way around. It should be somebody very junior who knows about but is still able to speak freely. But I guess dead people, that's an interesting. Right. It would be very interesting, of course, to have Aaron Brockes. Mm. But that we would have to let Taylor St. John do that interview. <laughs> that, that would be a good in yeah. But also Peter Sanders, the Dutch lawyer uh, who was very much involved in the early answer trial work, these like founding fathers of arbitration mm. would be interesting, although that is somewhat of a standard answer, I guess. No, but the, I mean that
1: makes sense. It's a it would be a really good interview. I would, you know, I mean it was so good to hear like Christoph Bondi when we interviewed him talk about his relationship with the states and maybe so, just to go with your layperson comment, maybe like Kofi Annan. Not that we would interview him, but that type of figure, where it was someone who was a little bit more like policy focused. Where do you see trade in like a general sense? Um, mm. I think mm. that would
0: be an interesting interview. Mm. It's not like we have any guests that we want to have on the podcast, but we feel like we couldn't. I think we would have approached them already.
2: Right. I see, I see. Um, Next question is, where would you like to see this podcast in five years? Um, And what I mean by that, would you perhaps consider adding a video element or moving to YouTube full time, career and show business? (laughs) Yeah,
0: I would. Then we just need a video editor to take care of that. <laughs> <Yawns>.
1: <laughs> uh and then we could have our clothes sponsored. Yeah, right. Um, it would be great. No, but I I think a video I mean they have a lot of radios, have a lot that are doing a lot of video and putting it on YouTube. I think it is it's a whole other platform. It's like Twitter. Um, I think if we have the ability to do it, I think we would definitely do that. Um that would require us A to be in the same room. B. If we're not in the same room, then the no, video no, no. capabilities do of that. doing yeah, yeah. it.
0: I have to rely on you being the video guy in this scenario. Yeah, yeah, but yeah.
1: you have to turn your camera on. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Uh, and then no, but I would. I think that would be great. But again, it's a matter of resources and uh, time. So, if we have the money, then that
0: would be great. I'd have a GoPro, so we're halfway there. Five years is a long horizon, also. Yes. Can we? sustain this pace we can't do a weekly podcast for five more years at some point we, we have to reach saturation point with no more arbitration topics right it, but we'll just take bigger breaks yeah yeah exactly we do the game of thrones approach yes.
2: nice nice i'm looking forward to that um, <laughs> to but the the, not not, not, <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. to editing the videos but uh, uh, so one thing i know that Uh, Some listeners have been asking you if you needed help. So how can people help and uh, be be, maybe part of the podcast? Uh, What would be your message to to the brave volunteers?
1: I think what people don't know is that most of our speakers have been people who have reached out to us and Mm -hmm. have prepared a topic and kind of done the legwork for us. So I you know if anybody wants to be on the podcast get a topic together and Mm. contact us and we're more than happy to we we just want content so that's one thing uh the second thing is to have your firm or
0: organization that you're a part of sponsor us and then and these the, community aspects is what yeah. we have to figure out uh, now during the hiatus that is coming up in four minutes. <laughs> so right. like, how, how can we uh, amplify the community aspects? Because there are so many people and we have really no good way of connecting or utilizing the fact that we have now a community of people mm. that we talk to one-on-one, basically. I think we need to think long and hard on how to do that better.
1: Yeah. And if we're senior enough, we can just have people research for us. As well, mm. <laughs> that's a good target. We'll take interns, free interns. Excellent.
0: That's it from me. Um, that's it for all of us then. Yeah. Basically. Thanks, Jan. Thank you for all your no, work.
2: Thank, thank you for, for inviting me. I had. So much fun being on, on the other side. It's uh, so <laughs> difficult. How do you do it every uh, week?
0: Uh, <laughs> you're alone. There's two of us, and that will be, that's what we that's what we were saying. That's, that's, why that's why always we... <laughs> it, if one zones out, the other one is always. <laughs> it's true. <hot laughs> it's true. But um, so
1: that will do it for us for season two. Don't forget to if you want to reach out to us to contact us uh, at the Arbitration Station at gmail.com or tweet at Joel. Even though it's a break time at the Arb Station. Um, and I'll probably retweet it (laughs) because that's all my Twitter is. Um, And then don't forget we have our Oxford University Press coupon codes
0: on the website. Um, Anything else? No. Go out, have a good summer, and do something that has nothing to do with arbitration.
1: Absolutely.